Good morning. <clears throat> Why don't you open up with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We've, uh, we've spent the last two weeks looking at this Christmas gospel. The first week we were back in Isaiah and uh, looking at the fact that this Christmas gospel was expected. This was not something that came out of the blue, but this is something, this is something that had been foretold for thousands of years. In fact, you can't get past the first couple pages of your Bible without seeing the first prophecy of God saying he is going to send the skull crusher. And then last week we, we looked at this announcement that came from the angel Gabriel to Mary and what that was all about. And today we're going to look at this, this proclamation of the Christmas gospel. And this is perhaps a strange Christmas text, but nevertheless, it's an important one. We often think of good news as simply hearing of good things, don't we? That's what we think of when we, when we think of good news. That's what I think of when I think of good news. But what we're going to see in our text this morning is that good news or Christmas gospel news has a very real element of warning in it. You know, it may not sound like good news when you're woken up in the middle of the night and James Froislin is banging on your door telling you your house is on fire. I'm sure you've done a couple of those, haven't you? That may not sound like good news. But it's not good news that your house is on fire. But there is no better news that someone is there warning you that your house is on fire. The news is good because you've been warned of impending destruction. You wouldn't yell at that person. You would thank them. And so our text today, we're going to see warning from the prophet John of the coming wrath of the Lord and the need for repentance. Good news indeed. So let me read this. We're going to look at Luke chapter 3, 1 through 18. See what the Lord has for us today. This is what Luke writes. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of John, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached Good news to the people. I don't know if you've read verse 18 there before, but you read that whole passage and you think, that doesn't sound like good news to me. Because I think we have this idea of good news just being, you know, cupcakes and rainbows. Uh, Those are good things in my house. Uh, But good news is the Lord is coming in judgment. Repent and believe this gospel. And so the last time we saw this prophet John, he was headed out into the wilderness. You can see that back in chapter 1, verse 80. And he lived in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance. This is really the first time that he's come on the scene and what he's doing. We saw him last week briefly as we looked at this this, uh, announcement from the angel to his mother and father that he was going to be born the high priest Zechariah. And what John was doing is he's going around all the regions surrounding the Jordan River and he was proclaiming this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the guy is a little strange. In, in the, the Jesus Storybook Bible, I know I mention it often because we read it often, but the, the picture of him, he has, he has honey dripping off his beard and he has a locust hanging out of his mouth. Because that's the picture we have of him in Scripture. That's what he said he was like. He, had, he ate honey and locusts. And not only that, but he seems a little strange. He came out of nowhere and he starts preaching this baptism of repentance. And so Luke gives us here in verses 4 through 6 who he is and why he's here. He was prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 40. And his purpose was to prepare the way of this coming Messiah. John's the forerunner to Jesus, and his role was to prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Look at this language here in these, in these verses. It says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And I love this in, I believe it's in John when the people ask, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you Moses? Are you the prophet to come? And John says, I'm a voice. That's who I am. 
My role in life is to make the sound, and the sound is the Lord is coming. And so that's what he gets it from Isaiah 40. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And he uses this language of lowering mountains and and raising valleys and straightening crooked paths and, and smoothing out rough terrain. And this is all figurative language, and the point of it is that the Messiah is coming and there is nothing that's going to stand in his way. No people, no nations, not even the terrain itself. John is proclaiming that the Christ is coming and to repent. Repentance in its most basic form means a change of mind really means in the Greek, it means you're walking this way and now you're walking this way. It just means turning. It was much more than, than just that. Sin has corrupted us in such a way that our natural way of thinking is to love ourselves above anything and everything else. That, that, the, that the primary thing in us that we were originally designed for, we've seen this all over the place in Romans, the thing that we were designed for was to be lovers and worshipers of God. And that we turned it. We turned it on ourselves. We corrupted it. And we turned it on ourselves and we focused our worship and our love on ourselves. And so repentance, in the way that Scripture speaks of it, is this change from love of self to love of God. A turning from the direction we were going to the direction we were supposed to go, turning from our sin. Now, John's here preaching to the nation Israel, and the nation Israel many times in their history had turned away from the Lord. In fact, that's what this whole section's about. They're turning away from the Lord often. We saw a number of weeks ago in, in Judges, just that same thing that happened over and over again, that they'd turn to the worship of idols. They'd taken up pagan practices of their neighbors. The thing that happened by the time that John came on the scene was that Israel, Judea here, Jerusalem, was now under the control of the Romans and, and the, the evil Jewish leaders like Herod the Tetrarch. Now, at the end of this story, we didn't read all the way there, but at the end of this story, John is arrested and he eventually has his head cut off by Herod for preaching this message. That's who the nation was under the time that John was preaching this message. And we already know that the evil of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would claim that their genetic connection to Abraham and their, and their good works is what made them holy. Because I was, I was born genetically connected to this person. I am therefore worthy of salvation. And my good works add a little extra to it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees wouldn't come out and say that. But that's essentially what they were proclaiming. That's what's going on on the scene here as John's preaching this Message And so John comes in and says, the Lord is coming. Repent. Turn from this. John preaches this baptism of repentance. Come wash yourself. 
And when he's saying, come wash yourself, come be baptized in the Jordan, this baptism of repentance that he speaks of in verse 3, it's not that, that the baptism actually made them clean. We don't believe when we do a baptism on a Sunday morning that the person is being saved as they go under the water and being literally washed of their sin. This is a symbolic act. This baptism of repentance was a symbol of their repentance. They were doing this as the, as the outward sign that they had repented. Not that this baptism would cause them to be forgiven. But isn't it, isn't it good news that God forgives us when we repent? That's what's going on here. John is saying, come. The Lord has graciously provided us opportunity to repent of our sin. Look at our history. Look at our nation. We have 2,000 years of turning away from the Lord. We should have been struck down at any moment throughout history. And yet right now he has sent me to prepare the, the way of the coming one. Who, who, who a mountain won't even stand in his way. Who a valley won't even stand in his way. Crooked paths become straight. That's the one who's coming. And the Lord has graciously provided this repentance. Come be baptized. Turn. Walk with him. That's good news, isn't it? That's the same repentance that he allows us. Believers. Who, who in the room doesn't need forgiveness? I mean, how many of us this week have things that we just need to repent of? That's what's so gracious about this gospel is that he provides this in Christ. This is, so this is what John's proclaiming to the people. And the people are coming out in droves. They're all over the place. I mean, and it's not like they're, they're walking down to the local meetup spot. John's out in the wilderness. Here's a, here's a hairy man with honey on his beard eating locusts by a river in the middle of the desert saying, come repent of your sin and people are coming in troves. Now, it's interesting here because uh, I don't know that he wrote, he read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People before he said this sentence, they came out and drove crowds, verse 7, to be baptized by him. And he says to them, you brood of vipers. <laughs> now, what he's doing here, when, when, uh, when the fields would, would catch on fire, all the wildlife would run out of the field to avoid being killed. And, and in, the middle, in the Middle East, when this would happen... Snakes, vipers would come, I was going to say running, they don't run, slithering, slithering quickly out of the fields. They would come pouring out. And, and this, is, this is what John's picturing here. He's not, he's not calling them names necessarily, although he might have chosen a, a softer term. What he's doing is he's, he's picturing the fields are on fire and the snakes are running to life. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who told you the fields were on fire? 
What John's saying is, do you really know what my baptism is about? Are you coming out just to perform another ritual? Is this just a, another act? Because we've seen it in Israel over and over again. Is that what's happening? Or are you there because you are truly repentant? Are you there because God has done a work in your heart? You know, the question is the same. We deal with this a lot. You probably do too or have. Uh, Hit your sibling. Anybody ever hit their sibling or have people in their house who hits their sibling? And you're forced to say sorry, even though you don't mean it. You know what I'm talking about? That's the question John's asking them. Are you repenting because you think you can trick the coming Lord? Or because you've truly had a change of heart? Are you running just because the field's on fire? Or have you had a change of heart? That's what he's asking. And so he says to them, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't, don't begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. The people were so prone to thinking that because of their race, they deserve the favor of God. He'll understand. We're, we're Jewish. We're the chosen people. That was the thinking. And look what John says. Don't begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Don't think that there's some, anything special than, in you. If he wants to, he can turn this table into his child. He can make more of you out of these rocks if he wants to. And this is, this is where we should be headed in our thinking as we think about Christmas. It reminds us, as we see the baby in the manger, that we need something outside of ourselves. You see that? We need something outside of ourselves for salvation. The only thing that we bring in this is our sin. We need a Savior. So let's look at what repentance means really a little bit deeper here. The the people recognized that repentance meant more than simply saying you're sorry. Why is that? Well, because, look, verse 10, they ask, "What, what shall we do? They aren't, they aren't asking because they want to know how to earn God's favor. The, the question is asked because they recognize that repentance involves not just a change of mind or a change of heart, but also a change in behavior as well. That there's, there's something that goes on in regeneration that, that, that a life actually changes. That behavior actually changes. That when a person is born again, regenerated, and repentance takes place, it's not just that they have different philosophical ideas now. 
You know, I used to vote this way, but now I vote this way. That means I've been saved. Now, it's more than that, isn't it? Look, if your life isn't bearing godly fruit, I think the point here is that, well, there's probably something wrong with your heart. Jesus uses this example. John uses it right here. How do we know an orange tree is an orange tree? That's a basic question, isn't it? But it's a deep one. How do we know an orange tree is an orange tree? Well, it grows oranges. How do we know a believer is truly a believer? He bears godly fruit. What shall we do? That's what the crowd asks. And he says to them, verse 11, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. What is he doing there? He's not giving them a list of things to do. He's telling them, love your neighbor as yourself. A sign that you are repentant of your sins is that you're charitable to your neighbor and that his needs are more important than your own, as, as an example here. We get down to this basic reality that comes out of the gospel again, is that repentance evidences, evidence itself in a godly life. This says the same thing to the tax collectors. Look, verse 12, tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Tax collectors were not um, a liked bunch in the first century in Rome. They had to meet their quota. They had to go and take what they were supposed to. But they were allowed to take really whatever they wanted. They decided, you know what? I want to go out for some lobster tonight. And they happen to be knocking on your door today. Well, guess what? You're paying for their meal. That's what they did. They had full legal right to set their own wages, and they did that by taking as much as they wanted out of your pockets. And so John tells them, take no more than you're authorized to do. Again, basic. Regard your neighbor as more important than yourself. To the point that you would give up your lavish lifestyle for their good. He's once again back to love God and love neighbor. Soldiers, look at this. Verse 14, they asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. That's what they would do. They'd go up to people. They were the ones with the sword. They would threaten them and take their money. True repentance evidences itself in a transformed life. Jesus says later on, all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The first precedes the second and the second is evidence that the first has taken place. If true repentance has taken place, it will be evidenced in a life that bears godly fruit. 
A life of repentance is evidence of God's saving work in a person's life. Look at this next thing. John's a powerful preacher, obviously. Not only that, but the people are in expectation for the Messiah to come. And so they question, maybe it's him. You know, he's a little eccentric, but maybe this is the Messiah. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Question whether he might be the Christ. I mean, think, think about this. Think about what John could have done right here. Have you ever thought about this before? You have an entire nation coming to you, really ready to explode at the drop of a pen and take over Rome. They're ready to fight. It's prophesied in the Old Testament that they are going to rule God through his people. It's how they are interpreting that. And they know that when the Messiah comes, that's when he's going to go to the throne and they're going to take over the world. And they're in expectation of that. And here's a guy that seems like he might fit the bill. And here they are, all of them together, and say, are you the Christ? You think about what John could have done. Let's go. Let's do it. But look what he says. He could have easily, he could have easily claimed to be the Messiah, but instead he says no. I baptize you with water, but he who's mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. There's nothing special in this baptism. The one who's coming is mightier than I. And I love this picture right here. I am not worthy to untie his sandal. Now we take baths and we wash our feet and we keep our shoes inside. Uh, untying a sandal in the first century was a task that was given not just to the lowest servant, but the, the lowest servant under the lowest servant. It was the nastiest job in existence. And John says to these people who are really ready to make him king, I'm not even worthy to do the lowest job for the Messiah. He's so much greater than I. I'm not even worthy to un untie his shoe to do the most demeaning task there is. That is what a repentant heart pointed in the right direction looks like, I believe. John is preaching this baptism of repentance, but he's also living it. This is what a, a heart that recognizes its sin in the face of Christ looks like. And this is true of all of us. None of us are worthy even to untie the sandals of Jesus. That's what's so surprising about Christmas, isn't it? We stand here as guilty sinners before God, not worthy. I mean, in the Old Testament, Moses had to hide in a rock because if he looked at him, he would disintegrate. John says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of the Messiah. And yet we see this picture on Christmas as Jesus sits in a manger with the purpose of going to the cross to die for our sins. John says, 
my baptism is just a symbol. When he comes, he's not just going to dip you in water. He's going to baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire, with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I believe here what he's talking about is Pentecost, when Jesus will ultimately pour out his spirit on his people. He'll immerse his people in the spirit. That's true of us. We're on the other side of Pentecost. If you're a believer this morning, you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. This language of fire in the Bible, it's often the picture of judgment. And I think what he's doing here, he's picturing the repentant receiving the mercy of the coming Lord, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the unrepentant experiencing the fire of judgment. Baptism of fire is a pretty wild picture there, but that's what he's picturing, is the unrepentant being baptized with the fire of judgment. He says it another way, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat in its barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. They would use these, these tools to pick up the wheat and the chaff would blow away and the, the wheat kernels would fall. And he would burn up the chaff. This is language of salvation and judgment. And and if we go back to that story at the beginning of the lady in her house that's on fire. the, The information may not be good information. No one wants to hear that their house is on fire. But it is good news for those who heed the warning, isn't it? See, the essence of the gospel is this. God is coming. His wrath is going to consume all flesh. Jesus says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your sin on your hands and knees and ask God for his mercy in Christ. We never, we never get past this gospel. That's why we never move on from the cross. You know, 50 years from now, I don't know if I'll still be standing here in 50 years, but 50 years from now, this same message of the cross better be being proclaimed from this stage, assuming it's still standing. We don't move on. We don't get past the cross. We don't move on to some higher form of learning and philosophical something another. What do we go to every week that we are sinners and that God in his grace and mercy has come and dealt with it at the cross? We never move on from this. And for those of us who God has graciously granted repentance and faith, we don't sit as condemned sinners. I started reading this book. It's called Seculosity. You've never heard the word before because the guy coined the term. So that's why you've never heard it before. And he's doing this study on how we culture has replaced the church with everything else. And that we as people are in church 24-7. It's the church of, of work or the church of parenting or the church of of whatever you can fill the blank in with. And he said, the difference between the two 
is that when you go to the scripture, you find that your righteousness is not enough. But that you go to the scripture and you find that Christ's righteousness is enough and he has supplied everything you need for life and godliness, that he has done the work. The same problem exists out in the world that we find that we may not use the word righteousness, but we find we're not enough. You'll find that as a parent, you're not enough. You don't do a good enough job. You find that at work. You don't do a good enough job. You're not enough. Is it Rockefeller that said he doesn't have enough? When will he have enough? The next dollar. And that there is no message of the enough has been paid for. But when we come to this word, those of us who have graciously been granted repentance and faith, we don't sit here as condemned sinners. We sit here as justified sons of God because Christ went to the cross and paid our penalty. Christmas, the the incarnation, it's the great reminder to us that we deserve God's wrath and judgment. It's not the first thing that comes in our mind as we think Christmas, but it's an important thing that we don't forget. We deserve God's wrath and judgment, but in his great mercy, he sent his only son, Jesus, to take our sin. And to bury it with him in the grave. And to leave it there as he was raised to new life. And he's the one who sits on the throne. Ruling and reigning in his church. Amen. Let's have the ushers come forward now. And we'll take the Lord's Supper together. This is both a reminder of the grace of God and the judgment that is coming and that we deserve, but that Christ took. And so we could easily turn this into a ritual, couldn't we? We could easily turn this into a a thing where we do to something we do to earn God's favor, but it's not true. It's a reminder to us that God has done the work in Christ. I'm going to pray. Ushers here will pass out the elements. Take these at your leisure. If you are a believer, worship Christ during this time. If you are not a believer, just let these pass you by. Consider this gospel. Do business with God during this time. And then afterwards, we're going to sing one more Christmas song. And then we'll close. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your great mercy in Christ. We who from birth have turned our love, our desires, our affections, our worship on ourselves... We who were created in the image of God to worship the creator of the universe have instead decided to worship ourselves. And the result of that, the payment for that, 
is death, judgment. And Father, you and your great mercy have decided in your plan of salvation before the foundation of the earth that you would send your son to save your people. And Father, I know that there are plenty of us in the room who often feel like perhaps we still sit under the judgment of God, that our lives don't measure up perfectly how they should. Maybe we sit in fear. Father, I pray that you would remind us from your word that Christ has paid the penalty. That people who are believers, who sit regenerated, given new life, justified before you, don't sit here as condemned sinners, but as forgiven sons of God. And that forgiveness is still granted to us. That we have free access to the throne room and that we can come bearing our guilt and our sin, the difficulties, the difficulties that we go through each week, and that you forgive us lovingly. You're doing your work of sanctifying us and making us more like Christ. Father, I pray, especially now as we are in this Christmas season, that you would not let us forget the purpose of your coming in Christ. We thank you, Father. Be with us now as we take the Lord's Supper. Father, would you be glorified in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.